folks, and I would venture to say some of you here this morning, who in your minds, you look and you say that the Old Testament folks, they got to heaven by doing good works. They got to heaven by performing the law, by going to temple, uh, by doing those things. If that would be the case, then that would say there are two ways to get to heaven. One by the works of the law, one by your own righteousness, and then another by the righteousness of Christ. And the reality is this. We'll get to see Abraham and Moses and Noah and, and Ruth and all of the saints of the Old Testament. Why? Because they looked forward to the day that Messiah was coming. We simply look back to the day that he has already come and we anticipate his return. But it's always through faith in Christ alone. It's through grace alone, in him alone. And so we've been studying through the book of Galatians, the letter that Paul wrote uh, to the churches there in what is uh, modern-day Turkey along the Mediterranean Rim. Uh, Paul was, in essence, convalescing there. Uh, he uh, was something had happened in his life, and so he stopped in Galatia. And unlike uh, many uh, of us today, if we were convalescing, uh, we kick back and we say, "I'm done. I- I'm done working. Uh, I'm done in ministry of the church." Paul, something was going on in his life, and he said, "Well." The Lord stopped me here in Galatia, so I guess this is where I'm going to be ministering for a while until I get better and can move on to wherever else it was that he was going. And so he ministered there in Galatia, and he started churches. As a side note, folks, within the Christian church and within Christianity, there is no retiring. Some of you need to refire. And you need to gear back up and recognize God has you here in this beautiful place on this wonderful island or in uh, the area uh, uh, on the mainland that you're here not to kick back and wait till you get to heaven. You're here to minister in his name powerfully and see great things happen. That's what Paul was doing. And so as Paul left, he then wrote this letter to the Galatian church. And he was concerned because there was a lot of stuff happening uh, there. There were false teachers coming in from Jerusalem who were saying, hey, you get to start with Jesus, but you need to add a little bit of good works onto it. You got to go back uh, to the Jewish law a little bit. Uh, There was that draw from their own families in all of the temples. We've described Galatia in that area sort of as a spiritual Disneyland. If you wanted a God, he or she was available to you. There was a temple for everything. And if there wasn't one, guess what? They were entrepreneurial enough and pluralistic enough to say, start your own religion. And you could. You could do whatever you wanted to do. It didn't matter. And here comes Paul making this statement like I made to the kids. There's only one God. And it's Jehovah God. And there's only one way that you can get to him and be in relationship with him. And that's through Jesus Christ, his son, who came to earth and took on human form. He was fully human, yet fully God. Now imagine at that point, these people thought that the world was dirty and ugly and terrible. And the best way for spirituality was to escape this world. And all of a sudden Paul's preaching a gospel that says, no, he actually entered into this world and took on flesh. And they would have gone, why in the world would he have done that? Paul goes, I'm glad you asked the question so that he could redeem it all that he could show that part of the work of the gospel is redeeming us not only spiritually, but all of creation physically. You know that, right? This, my dad used to call this stuff right here, just your earth suit. It's just here and it's falling apart. Anybody notice this week that it's falling apart? 
I wake Lisa up sometimes walking across the room trying to tiptoe and my ankles snapping and my knees readjusting. Uh, I sound like a fire. I feel like snapping pops are all over the floor. And, and it's just sort of falling apart. And we go, oh, what's this all about? And the gospel comes in and says, guess what? This body, he's going to redeem it fully. One day we get a new body and it's different without any of the effects of sin and distress, any of it. What a wonderful day to look forward to. And Hilton has a pretty nice place. It's kind of beautiful. Anybody think it's a beautiful place? Yeah, it's sort of nice. You're here for a reason. I have friends who go, wow, McCutcheon, you're really suffering for Jesus down there in Hilton Head. I'm like, somebody has to do it. These people needed a pastor. And, uh, you know, I, I sat on the beach yesterday and just looked out in the glory of this creation. But you know what? It's not as beautiful as it will be one day. Because Christ says he's coming back and he's going to recreate all of this and make it without groaning. It's going to be perfect without the effect of the fall on it. And Paul's teaching this gospel and he's telling people all about the freedom that they have in Christ and what happens to them in the gospel. And for many, they were going, this is it. They were running towards the gospel of going, you mean I can get rid of all of this bondage of slavery, all of the guilt, all of my past, and God forgives me, not based on anything that I do, but he forgives me based purely on what his son Jesus did on my behalf? And Paul said, yeah, that, that's the message. But then there was a whole lot of other people who said, it can't be that easy. There's got to be some part of it that's you involved. And so they started mixing formulas. 95-5, I'm not going to expose my bad math and do any more. But they were basically saying, it's a lot of God and some of you. That's how you are saved. Paul said it's not. And so we've already looked at chapter 5 a little bit, but we're going to retouch it today. So if you have your Bibles, look at Galatians chapter 5. We said the theme of Galatians and the theme verse of Galatians comes here from this chapter. Uh, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't return again to a yoke of slavery. And we talked about the imperative and the indicative, right? Uh, That the indicative always comes first. Stand firm is the imperative. Why would you stand firm? Because of who you are in Christ. For freedom Christ has set you free. Because of what he has done dramatically in your life, you are now free. Now, because of that completed work, stand firm in it. Don't be shaken. Don't move. Don't be buffeted by the wind. We sat on the beach yesterday and high tide was coming up. And I had this cruddy little umbrella uh, friend. It just wasn't going to make it. It was trying to stand firm, but as the day went on, it was lower and lower to the ground. And I watched other people just sort of fly around and just crumple up. And Paul's saying, you're going to be buffeted, but stand firm. Don't be moved. What he means by that is there's going to be a battle to try to take away your freedom. And that battle is going to be an internal battle because your own flesh loves to go back to the law We like regulations. We like rules, though we say we don't. We really do enjoy them. Uh, We feel safer in them. We can compare ourselves better to one another. If I'm a really good rule keeper and you're not, I feel better about myself. And if I find that I need rules in order to make myself feel better and I realize that I've set my own standards too high, guess what I can do? I change those standards. I lower them down just a little bit so that I feel better about myself. But guess what I do to your rules? I rise them up so that then I can feel better about myself. And in the midst of my rule keeping, I'm incredibly prideful because I have this sense that I can do it. 
that I can somehow do whatever is necessary for me to get into a right relationship with God. I feel better about myself in my pride of saying I'm better than you. And look at how good I am. Look at what I'm doing. And Paul is beginning to address that and strike right at the heart of it. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip over to Galatians 5 uh, and look. And I think it's going to be on the screen. Galatians 5, the first 15 verses. This is God's very word. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. And so we come to this idea of freedom, uh, that we come and, you know, for, for me and uh, I love, obviously, the, the stories of, of how people are saved, how they escape uh, bondage, not just spiritual, but even in life of how things happen. And, and you know, one of the, the great movies of our day, Braveheart, everyone talks about in that idea of freedom and it's, that we de- desperately desire freedom. He was talking about freedom, obviously, from oppression, uh, of human oppression, Paul is talking about a deeper and much more profound and much more sinister kind of oppression. That oppression that literally leads to your death. And so he's coming and he's saying, folks, uh, we, we need you to, to hold on to the freedom that you have. And he says in here a couple of things. He says, first, that this freedom that you have in Christ is the ultimate end of the work of the cross. Christ came to save you from your sins. Another way to say that is Christ came to free you from the bondage of your sins. Christ came to free you from the ultimate curse of sin, which is death. That, yeah, we're going to die a physical death, some unless the Lord comes again before that day. But he says, but that's not really death. For, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your power? It's been destroyed at the cross. And so death is just an entrance into true life, into him that we never die in Christ. He says you're freed from all of these things. You're freed from the bondage of the law. You don't have to ever earn your way into heaven. You're freed from your guilt. How many of you all have done something, honestly, this isn't a a rhetorical question. You've done something in your past that still bothers you. Have you ever questioned why does it still bother you? 
Have you ever asked for forgiveness from it again and again and again? The beauty of the cross is this. It's trying to say to us, it is God screaming from heaven, I've paid for that one. Quit bringing it back in. And Satan's going, oh, he hadn't taken care of that one. You've got to do some more. And that shame and that guilt of it come flooding in. God is trying to say to us in Christ, you're free from that guilt and shame. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. Do you recognize that? That in the cross, you are guilty of nothing else if you're a believer. That's a, that's a bold statement, isn't it? That you're guilty of nothing else. Just imagine this. I'm going to digress for a second. David, King David, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, he was, he was anointed to be the king. He was the shepherd king. He had killed Goliath. He had taken over after Saul was there. He had done these great things. And then he made a really boneheaded decision and a mistake. He was there. He should have been out leading his armies uh, when they were fighting. But instead, he hung out back home. And he was just sort of hanging out uh, and relaxing, going to the spa every day. And he got up one morning, stretched, looked out over uh, his kingdom. And there was this beautiful woman, Bathsheba. Uh, who wasn't trying to seduce him. She was going about her daily uh, business and he saw her there and he lusted for her and he used his power to draw her in. Uh, He basically raped her and forced her to be with him and she got pregnant through it and then all of a sudden he went, oh no, I'm going to be exposed. You ever done something, not that per se, (laughs) but you've done something and all of a sudden you're gripped with, oh no, I'm going to be exposed. It's going to come out. I was just reading an article about the former coach at the University of Arkansas who had a motorcycle accident earlier this year with a young woman who wasn't his wife on the back of the motorcycle. And he said his first thought when he was laying in the ditch was, now they're going to find out. He realized that his sin was exposed now to public derision. He lost everything. He's trying to hold his marriage together. But it's that feeling of, oh, no, I'm exposed. And now David is realizing she's going to get pregnant. Her husband's out fighting in the war. i got to do something. So what would any honorable, godly king do? Well, he had her husband killed. And then Nathan the prophet came to him and said, David, you've done a terrible thing. And David was convicted in his heart. And He pled upon the beauty and the righteousness of Christ alone for his forgiveness. And Nathan basically said to him, just as I said to you all today, David, today in Christ your sins are forgiven, they're paid for. You can read his Psalms there of 51 and where he talks about that sin being forgiven. Now imagine this. This makes the Bible real and personal. Nathan's standing there. He's just finished with David. And Bathsheba's in-laws come up. And they say, you mean he gets off just like that? You mean he who stole our grandchildren from us? You mean this king who murdered our son and ruined our son and daughter-in-law's marriage? You mean he's just going to get off scot-free? That's it? He prays some stupid little prayer? And he's off scot-free. We want justice. Somebody has to pay for our son's blood. 
Someone has to pay for the murder of our son and the destruction of all of our dreams, of all of our hopes. Someone has to pay for that. Who's it going to be? How would you have answered that? This isn't in the scriptures, but I imagine if that scenario had played out, Nathan would have looked at him and he would have said, I understand your pain and your anger and your grief. But let me tell you, his penalty will be paid. But not by him. Let me tell you about this Messiah, the true king who's going to come one day. And he is going to pay the debt for your son's murder. He's going to pay the debt for David's adultery. He's going to pay the debt for all of that. He's going to do it. And David is just going to be the beneficiary of this grace and this righteousness and this freedom that comes to him. How do you think the parents would have responded? When you start to wrestle with the reality of the grace of the cross of Jesus, it bumps deep down inside you. It, it, it hits somewhere in us. And that's what Paul was dealing with. He was dealing with people who were saying, this is too easy. All I got to do is believe in this Jesus guy and I get to go to heaven. I mean, all that person over there who has abused me my, my whole life, that person over there who is the meanest, most horrible person, you mean Caesar himself, if he just has faith in Jesus, he can be forgiven for all of his atrocities and sins and he can be in heaven with me? Paul would go, yeah. That's what I'm telling you. That wrestles down, doesn't it? That starts to strike at the very core of who we are. And Paul is trying to preach this gospel. And what we want to preach is this gospel. That it is incredibly radical and it is incredibly offensive. Paul said here, and I think it's in verse 6, maybe in verse 7, where he says, If I start to preach law, if I start to preach that there's a self-righteousness that you can do, I remove the offense of the cross. What's he saying in there? If you look at it a little differently, he says this, the way I'm preaching the cross is incredibly offensive and I will not stop doing it and I will not apologize for it. I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. I'm going to preach that the only way to the Father is through Christ and that we essentially are removed from the equation. All we bring is the bad stuff to it and what we have to do is accept it by faith through grace in Christ Jesus. And guess what happens to us at that moment? We begin to wrestle. There's a fight because there's a lot of people who don't want to hear that. There were folks from Jerusalem in Paul's day who didn't want to hear that. And they came up and they were saying, Paul's not teaching it right. You got to have a little fear in there. You got to have just a little bit of self-righteousness in there. You got to have a little bit of works in there because here's what pastors in my day, and I see a few pastors sitting out there and I imagine you guys uh, have experienced it as well. When you start to preach grace and you say that the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ frees you from the bondage of the law, you are automatically attacked of saying, oh, you're one of those people. You just say that you just accept Jesus and you can do whatever you want to do. Paul was accused of that. 
Paul preached the gospel in such a unique way that in Romans, he said this. He had preached Romans in such a beautiful way, and then all of a sudden he came now. Therefore, based on everything that I've just said in the first several chapters of Romans, should you sin that grace may abound? Because guess what? When the gospel is preached correctly, the natural instinct of the human heart is to say, I can go out and do anything I want to do because I'm already forgiven. If I'm not held accountable for my sins, if Christ has already paid for my sins that are down the road, you do realize that the sins that you're going to commit today, later, which you will, tomorrow, which you will, and the rest of your life, if you are a believer, they're already paid for. Do you believe that? Then what's your motivation not to commit them? What's your motivation? The people that Paul was dealing with said, I've got to add in a little fear here. Because people won't be motivated to holiness if I don't say, hey, you better obey the law or else. And so they said, it's, you need to have some law in there. There needs to be some of you in this equation. Because if there's no you, if there's no fear driving you from behind, you won't pursue holiness. Paul said in this section, no, if you understand the beauties of what you've gained in Christ Jesus. Do you think David, after his interchange with Nathan... And let's just say that that little story that I created actually happened. And David was standing there while, uh, I'm drawing a blank on uh, um, Bathsheba's husband's name. Uriah, thank you. Way to go. That was good. Um, And how do you get to heaven? You go straight up. That's right. Uh, So, uh, if David was standing there, And Uriah's parents were there talking to Nathan. And David was listening. And he heard Nathan explain how it was that all of his sins were taken care of in the coming Messiah, the perfect and true king. And all of his sins were forgiven and that that blood would be paid for by one who was innocent of that blood. By one who didn't deserve one moment of the wrath of God. One who was actually the father's son. How do you think David would have responded? Do you think he would have gone out and gone, I can go kill lots more people. I can sleep with whomever I want to sleep with. This is awesome. I can get drunk. I can get high. I can cheat on my tests. I can drive however I want to. I can treat my wife or husband however I want to. This is awesome. I got the grace of Jesus. I get to go do whatever I want to do. You think that's what David would have said? No. Because when the gospel overwhelms your heart, it leads you to just what Paul is talking about in this section. You will desire to obey. You will desire to limit, quote unquote, your freedom. Can you go out and do those things? Yes, but you wouldn't want to. Your heart and your life has been changed. Will it all take place overnight? No. Remember we talked about the jerk who was in church and he got converted on a Sunday morning. What do you have on Monday morning? Do you remember? Yeah, you have a converted jerk. he's not there yet. He he hadn't been fully changed. So some of those desires are still there. But as you grow in maturity, you realize, as David would have probably said, and as he did say in the Psalms, my God, I run to you. Would you be my strength? Would my life reflect you because of what I've received through your coming son's life on my behalf? I want to live the most holy life. Did David live the most holy life after that point in time? Did he ever mess up again? Yes, he did. He messed up. But it described David as a man after God's own heart. 
And I imagine that that statement may have come earlier in his life, but I imagine that statement meant so much more to him after he understood the deep and profound forgiveness and the freedom from death and of justice that he received through Nathan teaching him. So when we talk of freedom, folks, we're not talking about a freedom that lets you go out and do whatever you want to do. That's not the freedom we're talking about. The freedom that's produced in us is a freedom, Paul says here. It's a freedom to let you go love others well through faith. Faith expressing itself in love. Because you believe what you believe through faith, it naturally expresses itself through love. Two kinds of love. Love towards the Father in response to Him of saying, because you've done this for me and I've added absolutely nothing to it, therefore, God, I'm going to love you with my whole life, my whole heart, all of who I am. You realize this, that if it was an 80-20, God could only ask you for 80% effort on your part. But if it's 100% salvation through him alone, he basically can say to us, I want it all. You owe me everything of who you are. And that means, folks, everything. All of your life. We can't sequester certain parts of our life and go, but this doesn't have it. I was with a man one time who was a wonderful surgeon, but his reputation in the uh, operating room was horrible. And he was a leader in his church. And those around him said, this guy is the meanest. He curses. He belittles us. He does all of these horrible things. And yet he's, he goes to church. And I remember asking him, so how does that give, help me understand the balance of you believe in Jesus and you accept the forgiveness that you have in Christ, but yet this part of your life over here in surgery isn't touched. He said, Bill, that's my work. Or I get on Facebook and I see on your nice little religious view side, Christian, I love Jesus. And then I read your wall posts or I look at the pictures that you post or I see what you've liked. And I'll shoot you an email, by the way, that says, help me understand how this over here balances with your profession and belief in Jesus Christ over here. Help me understand those. Because if we've been captivated by Christ, taken over by the gospel, it leads us to want to love him more. And the best way to love him, he gave us at least 10 of them. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols don't worship anything else. Don't take my name lightly. Honor one day out of the week for my Sabbath rest. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't, you know, don't murder. Don't covet. Don't, you know, all of that. He said, that's a good way to start to do that. Lord, how can we love you? The scripture. This is that. And then the ultimate end, and we'll end with this. The ultimate end of whether or not we get this freedom, whether or not we understand it, Paul says is this, it is that faith expressed through love towards one another. Towards one another. Paul was saying, if you really get the gospel, if you really see it, then you're going to want to love one another well. You're going to be incredibly generous with your love. You're going to be incredibly generous with your affection and with your forgiveness and with your mercy. You're going to love well enough to confront others when they're in sin. You know, we have children who are baptized into this church. And part of the vows of those baptisms to you, the congregation, is saying, will you help the parents raise those children in the love and admonition of the Lord? 
So part of that is, do you love my sons? Well, actually, I'll back it up. Do you love the Lord enough and in the right way to love my sons well enough to, if you ever see them, which I'm sure they'll never do, mess up, you'll lovingly confront them? Or you'll come to me and say, Bill, this is what I saw. Would you love the Lord enough to lovingly confront me if you see me not loving my wife well or doing anything in a sense that brings dishonor to the name of Christ. That's what it means to love one another well in freedom because at that point, guess what? If I say that to you, I'm risking something, aren't I? If I challenge you on something, what could you say about me? What's your normal response when someone challenges you on something you're not doing right? Who do you think you are? You know, we joke about in relationships, you don't get hysterical, you get historical. (laughs) Oh, so you're going to call me out for raising my voice. I think I remember, oh, yes, it was. There it is, July 17th, 4 o'clock, you raised your voice at me. Oh, and you did it again on June. And Oh, and back in 2012, or 2009 and earlier, we just started going, who are you to point this out to me? You're not perfect. No, I'm not perfect. Or I'm risking the fact that you're just going to walk away. Lisa and I had a little bit of a disagreement. I challenged somebody, and it probably wasn't the right uh, way. Here's the way that uh, on Facebook that you basically say you don't want to listen to somebody else. It's a great little button. You want to know what that button is? Unfriend. I got unfriended recently. (laughs) The audacity of that guy. He was wrong, and I confronted him in Facebook in the public venue there. Stupid, I know. But all of a sudden, it's like, wow. But what happens, and that's just a silly example of it, what we risk when we live real together is that one of us can walk away. What is going to keep you engaged in those kind of loving relationships is that you are so understanding of the fact that your God will never walk away from you that your reputation is secure in him, that his love for you is secure, that you can then challenge and love one another as well. And here's the final thought. We just mentioned uh, about, family, or about um, family promise. There's gonna be 13 people in our church who need the body of Christ to love them well. Do you understand the freedom of the gospel so much that you don't care about your reputation anymore and you're willing to hang out with folks who don't have any reputation but a bad one? Do you, do you understand the freedom in Christ so much that you're willing to love your neighbors who don't deserve it or the people who take care of your yards uh, or the people in line with you or whomever it is that you understand who you are so well that you're free to go? I don't care what other people think about me. I'm going to love this person. I'm going to give to that and know that God will meet all of my needs. I'm going to do these things because I'm free to do them. That's a radical gospel. It's a radical gospel message. And for some of you, you still don't get it. And that's okay, but my hope is that you will get it. That you will get it. That the Lord will work in your hearts. And for some of you here today, today's the day you need to get it. Christ is saying to you, come to me and let me give you freedom today. The question is, will you come? Let's pray. Father, what a powerful section of Scripture.